0: after being extradited from the Northern Territory. The 46-year-old was the real-life star of one of the Top End's biggest ever manhunts, wanted over the beheading of Edward Kelly on the New South Wales' north coast last month. It's now emerged that while on the run, Stenberg found time to audition as an extra for a feature film about a serial killer in Western Queensland. He actually turned up here and went and auditioned for a role. services as a security guard all sorts of things and nobody twinked. As New South Wales police tried to find him, Stenberg was posing for film shots. found him really kind of spooky and weird at the time was uh, trying to play uh, an extra's role in our movie here in Winton. And it turned out he wasn't bad at the acting game, landing apart as a police officer. We found him a really comfortable guy to get along with. He was uh, very keen to take part in the movie and um, went off and made his teas and coffees. But when he got a call back, he turned down the offer, saying he'd moved on to the Northern
1: Territory. G'day and welcome to Kells Gone Bush, the podcast, where I'm bringing you all the craziest stories, characters and places from down under. So today I'm bringing you the crazy story of the Ned Kelly killer and his time on the run. Now, before I get into it, I just want to say that this was an absolutely horrific crime and in no way do I find that part amusing. I find it quite disgusting. Um, Yeah, nobody deserves to die like that. And the family don't deserve to have to wonder about what happened for the rest of their lives. So, that said, this is a pretty hectic uh, story because what happened after this bloke killed his neighbor was just something that I've never read about before and I'm pretty sure you guys wouldn't have heard about before. Although, you know, Google Florida man and your birth date and see what comes up. It's just crazy. I was thinking about doing maybe a special on Florida every month or so just because they're just as fucking crazy as the Territorians and everybody else in the outback Australia. Anyway, so we're going to get into this story. It's basically a long running feud between two neighbors that ended up with a bloke getting shot and having his head cut off. And the guy that did it went on the run, moonlighted as a movie star before going bush and evading the Northern Territory Special Police for around six days, maybe longer. Um, We'll get into that though. So These blokes, Edward Ned Kelly and Jonathan Stenberg, had been bluing for years. And they were neighbours in a small town called Broadwater on the Northern Rivers in northern New South Wales. It all came to a head on the morning of June the 17th, 2012, when the two men had an argument over Jonathan cutting down a tree on his property. Jonathan then had a few beers and in what had to be the overreaction of the century, decided the best solution to end the dispute was to go over to Ned's place and shoot him. He stumbled home from the pub about 3am the next day and told his wife, I got pissed off and I shot the neighbour. He'd apparently also cut off Mr. Kelly's head in a botched effort to cover his horrible crime, rather than actually a symbolic ritual, which was the speculation at the time. Although he did for some reason place an a Cobra hat where Ned's head should have been. Ned's head has never been found. Jonathan then let Ned's pet bird out of its cage before setting Ned's house on fire in an attempt to destroy any evidence. So, let's get into who the fuck was Jonathan Stenberg and what was his story. What made him go to such lengths to settle a dispute that could have just been settled with a bit of mediation at the local court? Let's find out. So, according to some records, and this is a little bit hard to uh, confirm because if you look at certain reports on in certain newspapers, uh, this particular story I'm about to tell you is the truth, uh, and if you look at the court reports, uh, not so much. So that will come up a little bit later, but for now... This is what you'll find if you type in his name in a Google search along with his horrible crime. So apparently Jonathan was a former army field engineer and a security contractor who'd worked in Afghanistan and Iraq. He trained in jungle warfare, bush survival and unarmed combat and on his CV listed his military achievements as demolitions, my favorite job, laying booby traps and training in reconnaissance before becoming, by most accounts, a successful builder. Initially, he was not a suspect. Jonathan assisted detectives with early inquiries into the homicide. He then loaded up his Mazda Ute, taking two Glock pistols and a rifle, and got the fuck out of there, heading to Western Queensland. It was this move that made him prime suspect straight away. It also made him Australia's most wanted, sparking a manhunt that spanned three states three states. When he got to the outback town of Winton in Queensland he was running long cash so he thought it would be a great idea to audition for a part in Mystery Road starring Hugo Weaving, Jack Thompson and Aaron Peterson. It also starred Roy Billing who is from most probably well known to the younger generation as the Aussie Bob in Underbelly which everybody loved that show so you would definitely know who he was and he was actually in the clip at the start of this episode the second assistant director mark ingram was pinning up audition posters outside a pub in the small town of Witten when he was approached by jonathan this gentleman came up and said hi said he was passing through town and wanted to earn a few extra dollars mark told reporters He was great, very polite and well-spoken, and he seemed really keen to help out on the film wherever he could. Bringing with him a couple of coffees and some biscuits, Jono returned to the local pub where Mark gave him an audition. It turned out, along with his military skills and his ability to cut people's heads off, Jono was also a great actor. Guess he'd have to be to have that kind of personality where you could cut someone's head off and then go and just be like, hey, how are you going? Can I audition for your movie? Impressed with his acting and background in the military, they cast him as a policeman, ironically. Mark told the media, I've held a number of casting auditions, but for a guy who is Australia's most wanted, to come through your door is most unusual. Producer David Jowsey was also interviewed, and he said he was good. He offered to do security on set as well, and we were keen for that. Oh my God, imagine how that would have turned out. Don't fucking move or I'll cut your fucking head off, mate. Yeah, don't fuck with me. Yeah, no, it wouldn't have worked. Lead actor Aaron Peterson, who played a detective who returns to his Dust Bowl hometown to investigate a young girl's murder, was originally going to run the auditions. However, this changed at the last minute. David said Aaron was going to do the auditions and to think our lead actor, who we entirely rely on in the movie, was going to be auditioning a fugitive was just... It's pretty amazing, really. They phoned Jono for his costume size and got no reply and then emailed a formal offer to the fugitive who wrote back to say that he had to go up north and turn down the role. The day after the audition, Jono's car was found thousands of kilometres away near, near dense bushland in the Northern Territory. It is, in retrospect, a little bit traumatic for the guys on our crew, David said. When you're doing casting auditions in the middle of the Australian outback, you just never know who you'll come across. That truth. Now for the manhunt. So the manhunt for Jonathan was one of the most extensive land and air searches in the territory's history. More than one hundred officers were involved. Tactical response officers from other states were also flown in to help with the search. Over six days, the Territory Response Group, A.K.A. the TRG, scoured the bushland of Berry Springs, which is around seventy k's east south east of darwin um i used to live about 10 days up the road i should know this but fuck me dead geography was never my strong point as we've established uh looking for Jono in june 2012 jonathan arrived in darwin the day after he auditioned for the role in mystery road the trg were tasked to capture the fugitive after he was spooked by plainclothes officers near nunamar which is also around maybe 50 to 70 K south of Darwin. Again, not my strong point. But it is situated on the Stuart Highway. And that's where he was spooked on, the 20, on June the 26th. Superintendent Sean Gill, who has a long career with the TRG, was the tactical commander of Operation Inferno to bring in Jonathan. He got a bit suspicious thinking the police were after him, so he turned around and ran, he said. He turned around and went back south on the Stewart Highway down Cox Peninsula Road and went at speed. It was an unmarked police car and it had nothing to do with the operation, ironically, but he still got spooked. Gill said the first thing the unit did was to do background checks on Jonathan and to prepare for every situation they might come across. They discovered he had a military background, had served in Iraq and had previously been treated for depression and was a recreational shooter. They believed he came to the territory loaded with guns. We were wondering what he was coming to the territory for, he said, which is ridiculous considering the Northern Territory is pretty much regarded in Australia as one of the best places to disappear if you wanted to, or even if you didn't want to so if you ever want to get rid of a body just you know don't quote me on this but yeah probably one of the best places to go um didn't hear that from me hashtag crocodiles hashtag wild pigs anyway back to the story trg members began searching for Jono, quickly coming across his ute covered with a camouflage net beside a creek near cox Peninsula road and kentish road in berry springs When we found the car, I was worried that he was going to be in the car and try and escape, so I approved the TRG to shoot the tyres out so he wouldn't get in the car and drive away, Gil said. We hooked the car up to the Cat, which is basically a massive army tank looking thing, and dragged it out of the area so he had no way of escaping, not by vehicle anyway. I mean, this guy is hectic and smart and obviously crazy. I don't think he's gonna need a vehicle to escape. He'll find a way, he'll find a vehicle, he'll do it. He's crazy. He had firearms, he had pistols, he had all sorts of firearms on the back. A search of the car found his phone, which detectives were able to access and find vital information such as the guns he owned. Gil authorised roadblocks across the rural area and put out messaging urging people to stay indoors. The plan was to pin him to the area and avoid allowing him to slip out. We were just smashing the area with the helicopter, Gill said. We wanted him to keep his head down. We wanted as much air cover as we could to limit his chances of being able to walk around. The whole idea was to pin him, keep him in one area... And we were going to get him from a piece of evidence or he was going to make a m- mistake and I was going to just jump on him. Felt like cat and mouse, Gil said. Snipers sat on the helicopters as a precaution should Jonathan decide to open fire. When you do this job, things get really hard. I'm sending people into an area where there's an armed defender, and there's every chance he's going to shoot at them. It's quite stressful when you're sending people out on jobs you don't know if they're gonna come back from, but this is what we do, Gill said. The TRG team worked 20 hour days for several days straight and were becoming worn out. So in an effort to bolster resources, 30 to 35 officers from Western Australia, Queensland and New South Wales were called in and sworn in as special constables. Territory Day posed another risk for the operation. Territory Day, for those of you who have never been up there and don't know, is the one day of the year where Territorians are legally allowed to set off fireworks pretty much wherever the fuck they like and it's one of the days of the year they look forward to the most and um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. However (laughs) for this situation they were a bit worried because the noise of firecrackers going off all night meant officers wouldn't know if the bangs were, being, were guns being fired or fireworks. Serious considerations were made as to whether plans be made to cancel Cracker Night, which would have brought them a whole new set of problems other than Jonathan Stenberg because Territory Night being cancelled would have pissed off pretty much the entire Northern Territory. And they wouldn't have been happy, and they probably would have let off the fireworks anyway, so wouldn't have worked. And in the end, the TRG agreed. We thought about it, but we knew it was going to be catastrophic, he said. Yep, there would have been a lot of pissed off residents. After six days of searching, Gil decided they'd go back to where they founded the car. In the end, it was the forensic photographer who found Jonathan, shaking uncontrollably In grass beside the creek. They alerted the tactical team who at gunpoint arrested Jonathan. The photographer went in to photograph the scene and as he was photographing it he focuses towards the water and sees something shaking in the grass. What Jonathan did was he sat in the water the whole time. It's crocodile infested water and he just sat there as deep as he could for six days but after six days he had hypothermia so he couldn't stop shivering. Gil was one of the first persons to talk to Jonathan after his arrest. Jonathan told him he had jumped out of the car and grabbed as much ammunition and guns as possible, but in hindsight would have opted for food and water, which probably would have helped stop the hypothermia, but Jesus Christ, crocodiles, mate, have you ever seen a fucking crocodile documentary? Those things will rip you apart or you're alive. I'd rather go to jail for 50 years. Anyway. Jonathan had sat in the creek for as long as possible in effort to avoid detection. Apparently, there were two reasons for that. According to Gil, he wanted to reduce his heat signature because he thought that they had satellites. He also thought if we started shooting at him, the water would slow down the bullets and not do as much damage to him, which I had no idea about, but I actually asked another podcaster... And he told me that that is, in fact, true. So there you go. If you want to avoid being shot, just jump in a fucking river. Gill said that uh, Jonathan elaborated that he had multiple opportunities to shoot TRG members. He said he was really conflicted. Some of his desires was to shoot police. And another part of his brain was like, I'm not going to shoot cops. He did get pretty cranky when we shot the tyres out on his car though. Once Jonathan had been arrested and extradited, Gill said it was a relief. The overwhelming feeling is just relief when you catch someone like that. Most people slept at work. I don't think anyone went home for six days. It was a tough job but it's what the community expects of us. Jonathan was then extradited to New South Wales and it's here that we get more light on exactly what the fuck was going through his mind that day when he attacked Ed Ned Kelly and whether or not he really was a soldier in Afghanistan or whether he was just a big fat liar. So at the New South Wales Supreme Court, Jonathan was sentenced for what police and the presiding judge have described as one of the most bizarre murders they've ever dealt with. And that is a fucking understatement. It's here we get a bit of an idea of the events that led to the murder. The court heard that Jonathan had offered varying versions of the events to psychologists about the night he shot his neighbor, cut off his head and attempted to destroy the evidence with fire. At one point, he claimed he had been suffering from hallucinations and that a voice in his head had told him to go and sort him out. He said that after he shot Mr. Kelly, the same voice told him to take it off. So, feeling like he was in a movie, he removed the victim's head. Don't ask me why, he said, but felt so bad about it and what he'd done that he placed a Nakubra hat over the wound. So there's the reason behind the hat. He also claimed that there had been open hostility between the pair ever since an incident in 2009 where Mr. Kelly allegedly made homosexual advances towards Jonathan, placing his arm around him and said, don't knock it till you try it, which has never been proven and by most accounts is a load of shit. He described an argument with Mr. Kelly about chopping down the tree on his property and the sound of Mr. Kelly banging on his shed as what he called the last straw. Before and after the killing, Jonathan spread a number of lies to paint Mr. Kelly as a person to be feared. In the days before, he was drinking at the Broadwater pub when he showed patrons a silver pistol and told one of them he was a federal police officer hunting for Mr. Kelly because he was apparently wanted for drug and pedophilia offences in Evan's head, which, again, was... Not proven and not even, uh, there is no evidence. There was nothing. So it's probably, again, a load of bullshit just to discredit him and make him a bad person. While on the run from police at the Northern Territory, where he was eventually found barricaded in a hide and armed with high-powered guns and ammunitions, Jonathan emailed his wife and told her that Mr. Kelly had threatened to rape her. The court heard Jonathan was no stranger to telling untruths and here's where the lies start to become a bit clearer. He had previously claimed to have spent up to six years in the military where he came under in Iraq, when in fact he had served for two years on Australian soil and had spent most of his working life in the construction industry. Then there was the evidence about the precision in which Jonathan had decapitated Mr. Kelly and his attempt to destroy the evidence by fire and also what unsettled a lot of people was the fact that he'd let the victim's pet bird go so it wouldn't get hurt in the fire. I don't know what that says about this bloke. I mean, he didn't want to shoot the cops, but he cut his neighbor's head off, but he didn't want the bird to get hurt. So, yeah, this guy is a mystery. Justice Smith said the decapitation and attempted incineration of Mr. Kelly's body were brutal and unnecessary acts and the disturbing release of the bird shed considerable light on the seriousness of this awful offence. She rejected the suggestion the murder was not planned or that Jonathan was so affected by alcohol he didn't know what he was doing. She found that to the contrary. He was so unaffected that he was able to go in the dark to Mr. Kelly's home where he'd never been, execute him with a single shot to the head, decapitate him cleanly, take steps to set his home alight with a homemade fuse, to free a bird so it wouldn't be burnt, to dispose of Mr. Kelly's head, to drive back to his home in Queensland where he reported to his wife that he had shot Mr. Kelly because he was pissed off with him as he plainly was. Other than an off-handed comment to police about throwing Mr. Kelly's head into a river, Jonathan has never been clear about the location of the remains. Justice Smith said that had Jonathan been truly remorseful, he would have given a full account of what he did to dispose of that part of Mr. Kelly's mutilated body. As the head sentence of 25 years and five months was read out, Jonathan brief- briefly looked up at Justice Smith, nodded and turned his gaze back to the wall. Outside the court, Ed Kelly's sister, Miss Simmons, who was praised by the judge for the strength she had shown in facing Jonathan in court and reading out a series of moving victim impact statements, said the fact Jonathan continued to keep the location of her brother's head a secret showed the caliber of the man. She said Mr. Kelly's death had hit her family like an atomic bomb. I hope that Jonathan actually realizes what he's done and that someday down the track he decides to take his own life, put himself out of his misery, and save the taxpayers' money, Ms. Simmons said. He was a superhero in his own mind, but unfortunately no one else's. Jonathan will be eligible for parole in October 2037. So there you go. That's the crazy, insane, hectic, oh my god, what the fuck, murder mystery, or well, not so much mystery, murder, that uh, I've been promising to bring you for quite a while now. Um, because I didn't want to ramble on at the start, I just want to apologise if anyone actually follows this yet. I took about two, maybe three weeks off because um, first my partner's family came and we all got on the piss for, uh, yeah, it was a long time, and I ended up pretty hungover that week and then the next week I lost my voice probably due to all the drinking the week before. So I tried to record a podcast and it sounded like shit. So I waited until this week. Hopefully it sounds a little bit better than it would have. Um, coming up, I want to do some more lighthearted stuff. I'd love to bring you a few uh, Only in the Territory stories. I know I bang on about the Territory, but if you haven't been there, you got to go and you'll understand why I love it. Although... Most of Australia is pretty fucking amazing, and as you can see, this star- a story originated in Northern Rivers in New South Wales, and yeah, there's a lot of crazy shit that happens on the East Coast, lots of Yowie spotting, so yeah, we might go down that road, because I had a crazy neighbor one time that was a Yowie hunter, and apparently there's an Australian association of Yowie hunters, so I don't know, maybe I could find someone and try and bring him on the show. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's story. And until next time, Cal has gone bush.